Stripping Down Science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And also here this week, here's Phil Rosenberg. Hi, Phil. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, bird flu's on our doorstep, but is the next pandemic hovering on the horizon? We'll stay with us. We'll be discussing it shortly. Also, researchers have shown this week that road traffic pollution can trigger heart disease, and we'll be finding out why. And also, the Hubble Space Telescope's on its last legs. It's showing its age. Find out why in a couple of minutes' time. Phil. Also this week, we're exploring the world of pain with Cambridge University's Jeff Woods, who's found a group of people who can't feel anything painful whatsoever. Apparently, they're very good at firewalking, so look forward to that. We'll also be hearing about phantom pain. Now, this is where people who've lost limbs can actually still feel the pain from their missing body part. And pain specialist Cathy Stannard will be joining us later to talk about that. Also, we have David Julius from the University of California, San Francisco, and he's going to be explaining what tarantulas have in common with chilli plants, and why curry makes your mouth feel hot, and why mints make your mouth feel cold. And if you're in the mood to win some stuff, then up for grabs this week is a copy of my new book. It's called Naked Science, and it's full of the fun, funky and intriguing science discoveries that we talk about generally here on The Naked Scientist. I'm giving a copy away this week to a lucky winner who can tell me what powerful painkiller comes to us from poppies. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Phil, a fun-packed show this week, but kicking off, of course, with the subject of bird flu, which is hovering on the horizon for us. It's landed in Suffolk. Uh, What does this mean for the local population? Well, I know it means very bad news for people who keep poultry for a living because Bird and Matthews factory is where it's broken out. Lots of turkeys there are going to have to be destroyed in order to try and contain the outbreak. But what does this mean for us here in this area? Well, actually, it doesn't change a huge amount in terms of the threat to humans from bird flu. And part of the reason for that is that we've already known that H5N1, which is viewed as the best contender for the next pandemic of flu, has already arrived in the UK because a dead swan was detected in Scotland last year and it was found to have been carrying it, and that's probably why it died, in fact. So, actually, the arrival of this latest outbreak doesn't really change that perspective very much. So what's the difference then between this outbreak now and the outbreak that we had with the swan that was in Scotland? How is it different? Well, this is actually a physical outbreak because we've got birds who are infected and they're spreading it and it's growing in those birds, whereas the swan was just one isolated animal that was found. But there's really no smoke without fire, so that swan proved that the flu probably already has arrived here and now we know it definitely has. But why people are a bit worried is because all the time that you have this virus growing near to people, there's a chance that it could make that species jump because what we know about flu is that about 9,000 years ago when humans started to live together in big enough numbers to start to keep and domesticate animals in big enough numbers you move an animal with its own collection of viruses close enough to humans with their collection of viruses and they can begin to share infections between them you get viruses jumping the species barrier and flu, which was originally a disorder of birds jumped into humans and it gave us flu And every so often, you get the same thing happening again. You get a bird strain of flu, which jumps the species barrier, gets into people. It looks very different from our own type of flu. Our immune system stands no chance of recognising it. The whole world's susceptible, and that's what we call a pandemic. So what's the risk of that actually happening, then? You know, How likely is it that we're going to get this pandemic of bird flu actually occurring? I think the bottom line is it's not if, it's when. And the reason that I say that is because history has a habit of repeating itself. And we know that in 1890, there was a pandemic of flu. 
Then in 1918, there was a very famous pandemic of flu, the Spanish flu, which coincided with around the time of the First World War. That probably wiped out 20 to 40 million people. There was a bit of a flat spot for a while, and then in 1957, we had the Asian flu, another pandemic. Several million people died then. And then in 1968, the same thing happened again. It's all gone quiet since 1968, which suggests that we're really overdue for it to happen. And we've now seen this H5N1 in the third world, in Vietnam and Thailand and Cambodia and countries like that, where there have been jumps into people. And where this has happened, it's been pretty bad. I mean, we've had 60 or 70% mortality rate there. This suggests that it is gently learning this virus to, to infect people. But at the moment, it doesn't seem to have got any closer than we already knew it had. So I think, really, from a sort of public health perspective, there's no reason to be alarmist or suspect that things have suddenly taken a new turn in this story. So what needs to happen to go from the few isolated cases that we've had now to actually a full-scale pandemic? Well, what needs to happen is the virus has to change its surface so that it can stop recognising bird cells and recognise human cells, because on viruses' surfaces they have these little hooks or receptors. They're, they're a bit like molecular grappling hooks or viral Velcro, if you like, and they lock onto certain molecules which are on the, on the surfaces of cells. And birds have very different molecules on the surfaces of their cells to our cells. And so the virus has to adapt to recognise human cells. And that takes a few genetic changes on the part of the virus, which means that all the time you have a virus growing near humans, then there's a chance of it learning to make that change. And you'll disclose a sort of mutant virus that could get into people. And once it gets into people and starts growing efficiently, then you've potentially got a pandemic on your hands. Wow. OK. Anyway, well, let's, um, let's look to the heavens, hopefully for some inspiration, but also towards the Hubble Space Telescope. What's going on there, Phil? OK, well, unfortunately, the Hubble Space Telescope is a, a pretty old instrument now. It's probably our best-known space mission, and it's been up in space, orbiting the Earth since 1990. Uh, however, it's now also had some real problems with uh, malfunctions after this sort of time. I mean, it is 17 years old, so imagine, you know, if you had a PC that was still from 1990, you probably wouldn't I have. Be tra- <laughs> <laughs> How well does it work? I can imagine that it's not the best bit of kit you've got kicking around at home. Uh, and the Hubble Space Telescope, in the same way, is getting old, basically. It's, it's- a doorstop, actually. These days. <laughs> not the Hubble Space Telescope, obviously, but... But your, your old PC... Um, so, basically, the instrument that's now malfunctioned is the main camera. So this is the bit that actually detects the light. So this would be equivalent to, say, the film in a normal camera or the CCD in a, in a digital camera. And actually, it's a short circuit in the power supply that has uh, failed, uh, failed the camera and uh, basically now this, this particular camera is, a, is out of commission, probably permanently, because it's not, not really something that's going to be able to be fixed. Now, luckily, Hubble actually, actually has about half a dozen different instruments that can all act as these CCDs or as films to take images or take measurements. So it, it doesn't put Hubble out of use, actually, completely, um, but it does mean that it's severely limited. And actually, this camera was the most important one. Two-thirds of the scientists that want to use Hubble at the moment actually wanted to use this camera. So it does a, it's a big blow for Hubble. Although there is a new mission coming online soon, isn't there? The, the James Webb Telescope, which is going to be the second-generation Hubble. Yep, absolutely. Uh, James Webb is basically building on Hubble. Uh, Hubble really has probably been the most successful telescope that's ever been built by humankind. James Webb hopes to take that to a whole new level and actually go... Um, it's going to be launched in, in 2013, in theory, and um, basically that's going to be a bigger, better version of Hubble uh, out in space. Oh, well, let's look. Let's hope it uh, is as successful as Hubble, and let's hope Hubble keeps limping along in the meantime. Now, back on Earth, bad news for motorists, because there's a group of scientists at the University of Rochester, that's Rochester in the US, and they've been wondering why it is that when you look at days when the air quality is very, very bad, 
the death rate amongst humans, the excess mortality, goes shooting up. Lots of people have heart problems, and these researchers are wondering why. So what they did was to send a whole group of old rodents on the sort of rat equivalent of a saga holiday, if you like. They put uh, these aged rats, which all had high blood pressure, on a lorry, and they drove them on a 320-mile round trip lasting six hours, on the roads west of New York, and the rats were just breathing the same air as anyone using that road. And what the researchers did was, while the rats were en route, and for five days after their journey, they regularly monitored their heart rate, their blood pressure, and their electrocardiogram. In other words, the electrical readout of what the heart was doing. And what they found was that, in in response to being exposed to this air, these rats showed a 10% reduction on average in their heart rate, And they also showed a 70% reduction in the responsiveness of the autonomic nervous system. In other words, the part of the nervous system that's concerned with controlling unconscious things like how fast your heart goes, how high your blood pressure is, how fast you breathe, that kind of thing. And uh, one of the researchers called Alison Elder, who led this piece of research, said the fact that exposure to air pollution can cause the heart rate independent of other factors, can change the heart rate independent of other factors, is a big cause for concern. It's important to understand that these changes are taking place outside of the lungs, so air pollution is either having a direct effect on the heart in rats and potentially humans, or it's altering something within the circulatory system. And the chief culprit that they're worried about are these things called ultrafine particles or nanoparticles, effectively, tiny particles that come out of engines. They're about 60,000 times more numerous than the bigger particles, the the so-called PM10s and PM2.5s that we monitor. so there's lots of these things about, then. They're very, very numerous, and because they're so tiny, they can get right deep down into the lung very easily, and they slip through the gaps between the the capillaries that line the blood vessels, that make the blood vessels of the lungs, and they get into your circulation. And when they're in there... What the researchers suspect is they might be making the blood stickier or thicker by making the platelets, which, in, which are in control of the blood's clotting system, more likely to switch on and make blood clots. And this, of course, would trigger strokes and heart attacks. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Got an email here from Pat Endicott, who says, My sons and husband bought me an iPod for my birthday, and through iTunes I came across your Naked Scientist podcast. I've downloaded them all. I think they're fantastic. Keep up the excellent work. I listened to them all over the weekend whilst I was hospitalised with concussion following a horse riding accident on a Friday evening, and they kept me sane. So, good news. That's good. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. OK, the... This week, I'm just going to quickly go over a question that came in last week. Uh, Helen was speculating about uh, a certain uh, question from a listener about... uh, Sorry, a a listener from Norfolk who uh, actually asked why we should only boil water in a kettle once. She got a new kettle and it said on the label that's what she should do. Now, we actually got a couple of emails in from from the listeners at home actually telling us what the answer was. Uh, We've got one here from Anton. Uh, He says, he heard our podcast with a question about why to use cold water for tea. It's not the quantity of minerals, as we were speculating last week, but actually it's the evaporation of oxygen out of the water. Another email here from Craig says, uh, A tea taster once told me to always use fresh water. Part of the taste and aroma from tea and coffee is the dissolved oxygen in the water, extracts the volatile components from the tea and coffee, enhancing the flavour. Boiling removes the dissolved gas and... uh, Previously boiled water will produce less taste and aroma in your beverage. I didn't so that's know the answer. that. I didn't know that. No, I didn't either, so thank you very much to Anton and Craig. Uh, we've also got a quick question here for you, Chris. Uh, we've got uh, from Ron, who says, One question, why is it that when you pour cola in a glass with ice, there is more foam than when you pour it in a glass with no ice? OK, this is because the ice is sharp. Uh, this is what's called nucleation. Uh, when you add coke, which is 
got lots and lots of dissolved carbon dioxide in it, and that's what makes it fizzy, to a glass, you'll notice that the bubbles all come from little spots in one place on the surface of the glass, and they stream up in a stream. And the reason they do that is because there'll be a little area on the glass, a tiny imperfection, which makes the glass slightly rough at that point, and it makes it more energetically favourable. It's easier for a bubble to form there. And so the carbon dioxide dissolved in the, in the actual drink starts to come out of solution and form bubbles of gas at that point. And that's what creates your froth. Yeah, so if you put ice in the glass, what you do, because the ice is very, very unsmooth, it's got lots of sharp edges to it and lots of imperfections and cracks. And also when you drop ice into a warm fluid, the ice suddenly tries to expand and cracks. And cracks so this and creates, crackly noise at the exactly, same time. Exactly. This creates an even bigger surface area with lots of imperfections, lots of rough surface, lots of nucleation sites, and you get loads of gas boiling up. OK, fair enough. That's why it goes all frothy. Uh, Jim Prophet has written, Phil, and says... Dear Chris, thanks for your informative and interesting way of presenting the latest and greatest science. Uh, we really enjoy listening to your programme. I have a question about black holes. You might want to ask your friend Stephen Hawking up the road. You're in Cambridge, aren't you? Yep, yep, that's right, we are. Uh, anyway, he says, can two black holes merge together if they come close enough to each other, i.e. can one, the bigger one, suck in the smaller one? And also, what would happen if you had 10, 20 or even, say, a million black holes merging? Would there be a critical mass where they'd make something other than just an even bigger black hole? That's from Jim. Well, basically, the yes, in the answer to your question, yes, black holes can merge. In fact, when two black holes get quite close, it actually becomes inevitable that eventually they will spiral in towards each other and, and merge together. And actually, this creates a really massive energetic event. What you get at the end of it is, is another black hole that's just bigger. But what it can actually do is make ripples in space. Now, if you uh, know anything about relativity, Stephen Hawking probably does, uh, then you know that actually gravity is not, uh, or is actually caused by bending of space. So we're kind of on the Earth in our gravity. We're actually in a little well in space where it's kind of, uh, you, it's like a dip in space and we sink to the bottom, which is the surface of the Earth. Uh, and basically when you uh, merge two black holes in such a big event, you get ripples in this space. And actually, scientists are really trying to look for these things, these ripples, because so far they're only a theoretical idea. We think these ripples occur, and this would really help to prove relativity right if we could spot them, and that's what scientists are trying to do at the moment. But at the moment, no-one's no one's actually physically seen two black holes consuming each other, if you like. No-one's actually spotted the event at the exact time, as far as I'm aware. Food for thought, isn't it? Anyway, it's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Phil. If you want to have a go at our teaser, Phil, just remind everyone of the question. The question this week is, what powerful painkiller comes from poppies. And if you want to take part, just give us a call on 08459 25 2000 or text 07786 20 1960 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Thanks, Phil. Now, for the final part in our Science of Colour series, the Naked Scientist's own Anna Lacey has been looking at how animal coloration can be helpful in finding a mate and how some colours that animals use are completely invisible to the human eye. But to kick off, Anna's going to try a little experiment, guess where? In her favourite place, the pub. I've come down to my local pub to see if I can woo some unsuspecting males with the colour of my clothes. So, um, excuse you there, gentlemen. There's a nice table of three gentlemen here. What do you think of my uh, maroon stripy T-shirt and my blue jeans? Uh, very attractive, actually. I'm really liking the, uh, the, the stripes on your top. Well, thanks very much. That's very kind. And, um, uh, and what about you? I would say something very similar. I mean, I think the maroon is a, a very bright colour, vibrant colour, suggests a lot of fun. Yeah. And so here, the third, the third gentleman here, Mark, I believe your name is, uh, what, what would you think about me based on the colour of my clothing for a potential mating opportunities and, you know, being a partner, whatever? Well, my girlfriend would kill me for saying this, but I very much like the maroon. However, I'm thinking the denim's a little bit, you know, standard. 
Okay, so that actually turned out quite well for me. Uh, thanks for that, guys. But it turns out that actually a whole range of animals, and birds in particular, actually use their own version of clothes or brightly coloured feathers to try and bag a mate. So to find out why these colours are so important, I went to the Botanic Gardens to speak to Cambridge University zoologist Nicola Nado. Why females would be particularly attracted to these colours is an area of debate at the moment. But it's thought that they could indicate the fitness of the bird. So if these colours are particularly costly to produce, then that could indicate to the the female that I'm a particularly strong and, and healthy male. Isn't it also the case that, that the colours that we see in birds isn't necessarily what the birds are seeing? Yes, so um, we've only got three types of colour photoreceptor in our eyes, so these can detect green and red um, and blue, whereas birds have a fourth, and this can detect ultraviolet light, which we can't see. So, for example, blue tits, um, they look the same to us, but the males have these ultraviolet ornaments that we can't see. So are they using that again to try and attract the females? Yeah, so it's thought that the healthier males have brighter UV ornaments um, and the females can detect these and, and yeah, use them in, in mate choice. Lots of animals use UV ornaments and patches to attract mates. But how on earth do you actually go about making the colour UV in the first place? Well, it turns out you can actually do it in two different ways. Now, one of these is with pigments, so say something equivalent to a paint. And the other is by something called structural colour, And for that to work, you need to use a process called interference. Now, this works by having tiny barbs or scales that act a little bit like reflectors. And these are spaced at specific distances, so they reflect certain wavelengths or colours of light and cancel out all the others. Mike Majerus, a professor of evolution, explains a little bit more about this and how it works in butterflies. Butterflies are in the insect order Lepidoptera, which simply means the scale wings. And the wings, if you've ever touched a butterfly with your fingers, you get all these scales just rubbing off. And they're covered with literally thousands of these tiny little scales. That gives them this enormous capacity for fabulous colour patterns. So how does the colour actually form through the structure of those scales? Well, the the scales, it's like tiles on a roof. Um, They are placed very close together at an angle. And at the sort of top end you'll get a tiny little gap. Now, the distance between it causes an interference effect as white light hits it. And just by putting the scales greater or lesser distances, you can get different physical reflectances. So what kind of colours can you get with this this structure, with the scales? What's the potential for that? Oh, for the reflectance patterns, um, they can be virtually any colour, but the most common are blues and greens. Once you go into the, the... chemical pigments you can get any color you like all the colors of the rainbow but for birds like blue tits some pigments are actually quite rare here's nicola again well in general there aren't any blue pigments that are used in birds so all blues will be structural so the the garden blue tit is it's not actually got any blue dyes if you like in its feathers it's all to do with the structure of its feathers reflecting the light in a certain kind of way yes exactly so if you took the feathers and mushed them up then they wouldn't appear blue it's just purely yeah the structure of the feathers that's producing that color so it turns out color's not just about slapping on a bit of paint because of all the different colors out there some are made by pigments some are made by tiny structures in the wings and feathers of the animals and some colors just need a bit of both and what's even more amazing is that there's a whole load of these colours that we can't even see. 
But what we have seen over the past few weeks is that colour spans a whole range of disciplines, from biological greens to chemical purples, and also how it's completely revolutionised the world of fashion, medicine, and got far enough under our skin to change our behaviour. So by just looking at the word colour, what we've actually done is taken a journey through physics, biology, chemistry and psychology, meaning that we've not only learnt about the science of colour, but a little bit about the diversity and colour of science. You didn't know that, did you? Thank you very much, Anna. And if you want to hear any of that series again, you can find them all archived on our website at nakedscientists.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. got an email here from Aaron who says... Uh, hi guys, listen to your programme on the podcast and very much enjoy it ever since my dad put me on to you. My question's about the electromagnetic spectrum. How is it that visible light and radio waves are harmless but microwaves and gamma rays have adverse effects on life? There seems to be no linear path from the least harmful to the most harmful in the spectrum. The harmful waves seem to be interspersed with the harmless ones as you climb up the spectrum. I'm wondering if there's an explanation for this. OK, well there are two different mechanisms going on here. Uh, the first is that as you get higher frequency waves, so that's gamma rays and, and UV waves and X-rays and things like that, actually what you f get is more energetic waves and they actually can cause ionisation, which is incredibly bad, and DNA damage and, and problems within that case for life. Yeah, the, the energy of those waves is powerful enough to rip chemical bonds apart. Absolutely, or even rip uh, atoms apart, rip electrons off the, off the atom. Uh, and that is incredibly bad for, for humans and for other life. Now, microwaves are something slightly different. Uh, microwaves are, are bad because water actually specifically absorbs microwaves and converts the microwave energy into heat. And that's how your microwave works at home. The microwaves are absorbed by the water in the food, which creates heat. So if you're irradiated by high-intensity microwaves, actually you're basically cooking yourself, which is something slightly different. But it's not ionising, so it doesn't damage your DNA, so it can't trigger cancer in the same way that ultraviolet could or gamma rays or X-rays. Absolutely true. Yeah. So, so when, when we're talking about the sort of spectrum, the, the shortest, the most powerful energetic waves are things like gamma rays and X-rays, yep. then ultraviolet, then there's the light you can see, then we get into the infrared, which is just heat, and then we're into radio waves and microwaves. Absolutely. And uh, the high-frequency ones, the gamma rays, are the really, really nasty ones. We've also got a question here, and uh, actually, to be honest, I'm struggling with the answer a little bit. It says, I enjoy your show on Cambridge Wireless. Here's the question... Why is it that car front windscreens appear more prone to icing than the sides and the rear? This is even when parked either way around relative to the prevailing wind, I think. Thank you, Alan from Huntington. So, no, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think we're going to have to ask people to help us. Yeah, I think we are as well. Maybe listeners at true? home... Is it true? I mean, is it just his car, do you think? Or, or is, is it actually true? Well, maybe listeners at home could actually let us know and... Uh, actually check their windscreens in the morning and let us know if the fronts went fogged up and the rears went fogged up and, you know, iced up. Give us an email, drop us a line at chris at nakedscientist.com and let us know how frosted up your windscreens are. Well, one person who might be able to help us with this is our guest this week, and that's Jeff Woods. He's from CIMR at uh, Cambridge University, the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research. He recently published a paper uh, on people who seem to congenitally, in other words, have a genetic preponderance not to be able to feel pain. But before you tell us about that, Jeff, why do you think car windscreens freeze on the front, not the back? I wonder if it's the angle of the windscreen, and when the wind comes along, it'll shear at a greater speed up an angled windscreen and get a greater drying effect. It could be. What do you think at home? If you reckon you know why the car's front windscreen f freezes before the back, then give us a call and tell us. Now, Jeff, tell, tell us about these people that you've discovered that can't feel pain. 
and we came across a bunch of children who were reported never to have felt pain. And at first we didn't believe that this could be the case. But we saw a number of these children, and they and their parents reported that they'd never felt pain of any type throughout their lives, whether they'd fractured bones, burnt their skin, scalded themselves drinking boiling water. It was a huge, huge problem to the parents bringing these children up and later on for these people when they became older children, teenagers, adults. And furthermore, there was nothing we could find that was wrong with their nervous system. They had normal intelligence, they had normal nerves, the nerves seemed to conduct impulses correctly, their brains seemed to be put together correctly, and it didn't make any sense by the current theories of how pain is controlled. And so we set about trying to find if there was a genetic disease that they had because it wasn't all people in a family who would be affected by this condition, it would just be some members. And so we used three families where parents were first cousins, so-called consanguineous uh, relationships. And using those three families, we mapped the condition uh, down to a gene called SCN9A. And in each of our three families, we found a different fault in that gene, which abolished its normal function. Where is that gene turned on? What cells carry that gene and, and switch it on? It's not entirely clear at the moment. It's probably expressed in a number of parts of the brain and in a number of different types of nerves, but it's very highly expressed in the pain-sensing nerves. And it probably has a redundant function elsewhere, but in the pain-sensing nerves, it seems to be expressed only at the very tips of those nerves, and it's the tips where pain is sensed. So what does it do? How does it work? Well, all pain is tissue damage, and... For that reason, it's very important that a species knows it's been damaged and stops itself being damaged. And it seems there's a whole series of proteins which detect various types of damage, be it hot, cold, pressure, etc. And they seem to be integrated together by this SCN9A, which seems to be an amplifier which takes these small initial tissue damage signals and turns them into a much larger sodium impulse and then a nerve can fire and actually the brain can then sense there's tissue damage going on and avoid it. So it's almost like an engine. You sort of turn the key and it, the engine turns over but doesn't start. And what you've got with your nerves is that there's lots of turning over, lots of starter motor activity, but there's no firing of the engine. Absolutely right. So why should these families have this? What's happened and where, where did this change come from? Oh, I guess it's just the random mutation that occurs in the human genome. And unfortunately, if your mutation occurs in an essential gene, it's going to give rise to damage. Why is it so uncommon? Um... I don't know. I've no idea. Some diseases are desperately rare, some are common. We usually use the excuse that if a disease is common, there must be some benefit to carrying that disease. But it's very unclear. Probably this gene's very um, important and any mutation in it is not well tolerated and usually got rid of as time goes by. Now, you mentioned the people who you spotted who had this problem and couldn't feel any pain. They had sort of inbred within their family, so that means one person was carrying one dodgy copy of the gene. They got together with someone who was carrying an, uh, another dodgy copy, and when you put the two together, you end up with someone with two dodgy copies of the gene, which is why they actually can't feel pain. Yes, that's absolutely right. And we all have two copies of most genes, and so just having one faulty copy is fine, because as long as you've got one copy of the gene telling the body what to do, everything seems all right. The parents of these children have no problem at all with their pain sensation. But what I'd like to ask, Jeff, is that if you normally have two copies of this gene and they're working, both of them are switched on, I, I assume because I can feel pain, I have two working copies of this gene. Does this mean if I marry someone and have children with them who has uh, one copy working, that you could have some kids 
that would have only one copy of the gene working and, and therefore they'd be less sensitive to pain than I would be. No, that doesn't seem to be the case. Most diseases like this, as you've described, are called recessives, and carriers of recessives are very common in the general population, and carriers have no minor feature of the disease they carry. They're just normal. So we don't think it matters if you carry a fault in this gene. We have extended our studies, as we discussed prior to this programme, looking at changes in the gene that occur, so-called SNPs, variants which occur in almost all genes. So this is just na natural variation that people have in the population? That's right. And it doesn't, doesn't switch the gene off, it just means it maybe works slightly differently from one person to the next? Well, we asked that very question. We said, is there any link between the degree of pain people feel and changes in this gene which occur in the normal population? There does seem that this seems to be one of about three or four genes where small changes in its function affect our pain thresholds. So if you've got a gene which is only seems to make a difference to your nervous system when it's in a pain-conveying nerve fibre. Does this gene explain why some people, for instance, have an incredibly high pain threshold and yet other people seem to wince at a gnat flying past them? I think it does. I think it's one of the explanations. There's a number of genes now which have been found to alter people's susceptibility to pain. And initially people were thought to lack moral fibre, etc. But it actually seems there is a strong genetic basis to not be feeling pain differently. And it's always been the case that some children cry when blood's taken, others don't. And people have said, oh, they're just being brave, they're not being brave. Some women need a lot of pain uh, control having babies. Others seem to need very little. It now actually seems that these people do have different abilities to tolerate pain. What were the consequences for the people in Pakistan in the families you studied who had this problem and, and couldn't feel any pain? Um, much greater than just being a rather stoic. Because it sounds quite exciting, because you think, when, you know, when I go running, um, it's, it's actually the, the pain of being grossly unfit that holds me back. You know, <laughs> could, could these people become super athletes, for example, because they don't feel the fact they've got the, this heart-wrenching stitch and their legs are about to collapse and then they feel like they're gasping for oxygen and I'm just describing myself when I run upstairs, for example. Um, yes, we, we thought along the same lines as you that pain was holding us back from being able to do better things, but in fact, no, pain is actually there for a very, very good purpose. Pain's telling you you're working too hard and you're starting to cause tissue damage. And if you carry on, you either break, break bones, tear muscles, fall down exhausted, etc. And these children and some adults we've now met with this condition have none of those restraints on their body, and so they continually damage themselves. They do dangerous things, do they? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, they don't deliberately do dangerous things. When they're children, they'll do stupid things because they don't know to stop running into walls, jumping off high areas, I don't know, just sitting but down very quickly. One of them quickly. jumped off a roof and died, didn't Yes, he? that's right, and he did that for his birthday because he'd had none of the restraints and the rest of us have to stop us doing painful things. He was just trying to give his friends a great show on his birthday. We've met some adults with this condition now and they'll tell terrible stories about the types of injuries they put up with because they didn't want to not go on a school trip or appear unusual. And yet they'd have broken major bones, not be able to stand up because of fractures, having burnt their lips on boiling water. But they'll do things like walk on fire. They will literally, without doing any jiggery-pokery or tricks, they, they walk on hot coals and things, don't they? They will, and they won't feel pain, but they'll cause as much damage as if you did it, which I'm sure you'll do for your next programme to prove well, yeah, the point. Kitchen, I was just thinking of a kitchen science experiment. Um, kitchen science is coming up shortly. We'll be cooking some sausage on the barbecue, I wouldn't advise you to walk on it. But 
okay, so we've proved that it can be bad if you have all your pain turned off all the time, but it strikes me you found something incredibly interesting because there are lots of people who in their lives have to go through incredibly painful things. Anaesthetics are not brilliant, are they? Uh, they're very non-specific. They cause lots of side effects, and if you take things like morphine or, or heroin for painkillers, they can switch down your heart and your breathing, so people die of, of heart and respiratory depression. Um, if you've got something which has the power just to inactivate this part of your nervous system, can we exploit that to make an amazing drug? I certainly hope so. I mean, it, you've, got, uh, you've, got, you've got a patent on this already, presumably. <laughs> no, we, do, we don't have a patent on it. No, we've not, we're not exploiting the result at all commercially. We're just doing it academically. Others hopefully will, and I know drug companies are looking at both this sodium channel and many other similar ones. And the hope is that if the people who have none of this protein feel no pain but don't have other side effects, then if you block this protein in a normal person, they'll have a painkiller without side effects. And that's exactly the hope that's, uh, that many drug companies are now working on. The is that feasible? We think so. The problem is that there's about 11 of these sodium channels, and they are very similar to each other. And so the problem is going to be getting drugs which are totally specific just to one of these sodium channels and doesn't spill over and block other sodium channels. Thank you, Jeff. That's Jeff Woods, who's from the CIMR at Cambridge University, talking about his recent discovery of individuals that don't seem to be able to feel any pain whatsoever. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. At the beginning of the show, we've uh, heard from Jeff about how genetic mutations mean that people can walk on hot coals and they don't whimper even. Uh, well, we're going to stick with throwing things on fires. Thankfully, it's not Dr Phil here. It's just some sausages, because uh, last month, Derek braved the January winds to have a barbecue with, guess who, yep, it had to be someone from Australia. Here's how he got on. Now then, for many of you, barbecues and winter probably don't go together too well. But do remember that at this time of year, it's not winter for everybody. Indeed, those on the other side of the world are happily having barbecues and enjoying them very much. And so uh, this, this week, we've come down to answer some barbecue-relevant science questions, and a particular question, actually, uh, with Hugh Hunt, no less, who's um, a, a man who's been helping us out on the kitchen science here on The Naked Scientist. And he's kindly um, cooked up a barbecue in his garden on this rather cold day, but we don't care because this is the residence of an Australian, so... Uh, it is really summer, isn't it, Hugh? So how are you doing? Oh, very well, thank you. Yes, it's, uh, it's mid-January and the, 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 the barbie's going and it's, uh, I suppose I have to pretend that it's hot and sunny like it would be in mid-January. Ah, dear, I'm sure you're missing it. So, so anyway, what, what's the question that we're looking at here? What, what are we looking at? Well, there's a load of sausages on the barbie here and um, some of them have started to split as they do and um, they've split from end-to-end, long ways, rather than uh, around their circumference. Yeah, OK, so, so we're looking at... We've got a whole load of sausages here, which uh, I think we're going to feast on in a bit when this is all done. But um, if I can just avoid the smoke, which is getting in my eyes. Basically, we've got uh, some sausages, and they do indeed have splits along the kind of skin that's on them. And the splits run from one tip of the sausage down to the other tip. And they don't go, as it were, round, you know, um, kind of circumferentially, you might say, scientifically. So why is that then, Hugh? Well, uh, you can think of a sausage skin as being a pressure vessel. It's actually holding in all the contents which are expanding with the heat. And when the skin suddenly bursts, it's going to burst in the direction where the stress is highest. Now, the stress is really the, the amount of tension there is in the, the skin. And it turns out that for a pressure vessel, the stress going around circumferentially is twice as high 
as the stress going lengthwise. So that means that it tends to rip uh, along the length because the circumferential stress is twice as high as the longitudinal stress. Now, the same thing happens when you put a, a can of beer or a can of Coke or something in the freezer... Um, if you want to cool it down quickly but you leave it in a bit long and it can burst it, it will also burst along its length and you can try that one it's really quite a, um, a neat experiment to although do. a waste of beer I would well say. actually what, what we Australians do when we're doing that experiment we drink the beer first and then fill the can up with water Ah, that's very good. Very resourceful. Okay, very good. And do we see this anywhere else? Oh, well, look, um, in, in an engineering context, if you have uh, gas pipelines going you know, for thousands of miles across Alaska or whatever, one thing you've got to be really careful about is that you don't get a burst pipe. If it starts to burst, the burst will go right the way along the pipe for hundreds of miles, and they say that the pipe unzips, and an unzipping pipe can be absolutely catastrophic releasing gas over a very very large area okay well there you go if you've ever wondered what sausages and oil pipelines have in common now you know um, and of course the best way to prevent your sausages splitting is well if you if you uh, poke uh, a fork in before you put the sausages on the uh, on the barbie then that relieves the pressure but the sausage connoisseurs will tell you that that gets all the lovely juices to drip out onto the coals and wastes them. So actually, you want to try and get the best compromise. You want to cook your sausage at a nice gentle rate so it doesn't burst and all the juices are retained inside. All right, well, there you go. Um, is, this, is this a cookery program or is this a science program? <laughs> well, um, for us, I think cookery is science, so there you go. Uh, all right, well, thank you very much to Hugh Hunt, and, uh, well, there you go, Hugh, let's eat. Yeah. Thank you very much to Derek Thorne and Hugh Hunt for finding out about the science of sausages in the middle of January. Now, next week, we're going to be having a look at radiation, but that's obviously a bit dangerous, so we're going to send our kitchen science guru, Dr Dave, to face the perils in the name of learning all about it. So Dave will be down at Sizewell. Size will be a nuclear power station next week with Anna to find out a bit about that and to do some interesting experiments. So tune in next week to find out a bit more. And also our teaser, so far we've got Billion Hopton, Julian Cherry Hinton, Pauline Lowestoff, Rosamine Daventry and many, many others getting it right. So get your answer in in order to win a copy of Chris's new book, The Naked Scientist. Remember, the question is, what powerful painkiller comes from poppies? If you know the answer, give us a call now on 08459 252000, text 07786 201960 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. And coming up shortly, we'll be talking to Cathy Stannard from the French A Hospital in Bristol. She's an expert on pain and how we treat pain, and she's also going to talk about the problem of phantom pain, people who have amputations, pieces of their body removed, yet they can still feel those body parts and the pain that originates from them. Quick question for you, Phil. Bill in Cambridge says, why does water bubble when it boils? Basically, you've got your element in your kettle, it's incredibly hot, and right next to that element, the water turns to water vapour, which is a thousand times bigger than water and a gas, and bubbles up through the liquid. Very good. Because when you make uh, liquid into a gas, it takes up a volume about a thousand times bigger, at least, than the original liquid did, and that's why the bubble is very, very big and comes burping up to the surface. Absolutely. In a second, we'll be talking to Paul, who's in Lowestoft. He's got a question about putting cold hands under hot taps and why that hurts so much. But first, let's go to Bristol now and talk to pain specialist Cathy Stannard. Hello, Cathy. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Um, now, can you tell us, we've been mentioning this question of phantom pain for a while, but what actually is it and why does it happen? Well, phantom limb pain um, is pain in a body part, in this case a limb, that is missing. And although there are some reports of pains in congenitally missing limbs, so people who have never had 
um, limbs. It's much more common in people who lose limbs in later life. And phantom pains do occur in other body parts, so there are phantom tooth pains and phantom bowel pains following bowel surgery. But by far the commonest sort of phantom pain we see is phantom limb pain. How can we actually treat it? Because obviously it's easy to understand if there's a part of your body that's damaged and you you can put some drug on it to make that feel better, that's intuitive. But if the part of the body that you can feel hurting isn't there, what can you do about that? Well, I think the interesting thing about phantom limb pain is that it, it, it reflects really the complexity of all persisting pain syndromes, which is that a lot of the signals that give rise to the perceptual experience of pain actually arise within the nervous system itself. So obviously if you have a hand missing and you have a painful hand, the signals are not coming from the hand. But you've got to remember that sensory information from the hand um, involves all sorts of processes up to the cortex and other parts of the brain. And when the hand is missing, the rest of that circuitry takes over to generate sensations. And in answer to your question about how we treat it, the answer is it we're not very good at treating it. it. The condition was described about four or 500 years ago. And we know masses about the neurobiology of the nervous system. We know about the psychology of it. And we're really not much better at treating it than ever we were. Now, that aside, that's obviously a kind of chronic pain. But you can sort of think of pain in two sort of arms, can't you? There's a, a bad pun, but um, you've got acute pain, which is I, I hurt myself and I've got pain now. But then you get chronic pain, pain that goes on and on and on forever. Why are the two different? Well, they are different, and, and the definition, really, of chronic pain is one based on time. So it, it's pain that's persisted um, after you'd expect in, uh, healing to have taken place. But really, they are quite different phenomena. And acute pain, as you said, is a, is a kind of expected pain or an everyday pain. Um, so if you stub your toe against a door, you would get an acute pain or burn your hand. Commonly in hospitals, we see acute pain following surgical interventions. And really the circuitry, if you like, for how we process acute pain is fairly well known, fairly well mapped out, fairly predictable. And usually one or at most two treatment interventions are very likely to get rid of acute pain. And it has a favourable natural history and it also... I think we, I came on the tail end of um, the piece earlier. It has an important warning signal to stop people injuring themselves. With chronic pain, it doesn't have that same warning signal uh, function. And it's also much more complex in terms of the circuitry that's involved. Uh, it's very unusual for a single type of treatment to treat chronic pain. And we usually have to use a raft of different sorts of therapies to treat it. And many chronic pains are resistant to therapy. What are the consequences of just living on painkillers? Because doesn't your body slowly become less responsive to those agents? Do you sort of become immune to their effects, if you like, which means that you have to take bigger and bigger doses until in the end you can't take a bigger dose and, and so you get pain again? Well, you're describing a phenomenon that we call tolerance, which exactly, as you say, is your body getting used to the drug. Um, not very many drugs are associated with true tolerance. The commonest ones are the opioid drugs, morphine, where exactly as you say, any normal person taking these drugs over a period of time will find that they need to take bigger doses to achieve the same analgesic effect. Other drugs aren't so much associated aren't so much associated with tolerance, but but I guess people sort of seem to get used to it and almost reset their own 
thermostat, if you like. Um, when, once they've been on drugs for a while, they maybe forget how helpful they've been. And often we see in a clinic patients coming in who've been on drugs for many years and comment that they don't help at all. But in fact, when they stop them, their pain is indeed worse. What about newfangled things that science has been able to throw at people with problems, uh, chronic pain, uh, in recent years, electrical implants and things like that? That's a very interesting area that we call neuromodulation. And the idea is that by electrically stimulating parts of the nervous system with very clever systems that can be totally internalised, one can modulate the sensory experience and... The commonest of these probably in the UK is a treatment called spinal cord stimulation where we insert an electrode next to the spinal cord and elicit a pleasant tingling sensation in the painful part and this seems to override the pain message. Now that's quite difficult and one often can't elicit a tingling in a phantom limb. So spinal cord stimulation is maybe less useful for phantom limb pain than other techniques. There is some interesting research coming out of Oxford and we're starting to do some in Bristol uh, looking at stimulating parts of the brain to treat phantom limb pain. And there are some promising early results, but of course these are quite invasive procedures which have not insignificant risks of their own. Thank you, Cathy. Now, now um, Paul in Lowestoft has got a question for you. Hi, Paul. Hi. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. You want to talk about what happens when you get cold hands? Yes, um, this time of the year you obviously get cold hands and a, a quick but rather painful way of warming them up is by sticking them into warm water. Hmm. Um, what you said earlier, pain is a sign of damage or warning of damage being mm-hmm. So, um, apart from being fairly stupid, is this uh, damaging your hands and what is actually happening when they're coming back to life? Cathy, what do you think? I th- well, I think it's... I think it's a very difficult question. Um, I guess it's partly because the cold itself um, produces quite profound chemical changes um, in and around the nerves that report pain messages, which is why anybody who's had their hands um, cold for a long period of time will describe how intensely painful it is. So I guess that the nervous system is already in a, in a rather sensitised state. And then one adds the... Um, adds another um, signal to those nerves. And what nerves do that aren't behaving properly is they misinterpret sensory information. And my guess is that partly what's happening is you have nerves that have been, as it were, upset by the cold. And when you apply a warm stimulus, because I guess um, Paul is talking not necessarily about putting your hands in very hot water, but just warm water, the warm stimulus might actually be interpreted as being painful, um, which, of course, is not doesn't necessarily mean it's damaging. Um, I think also it may well be something to do with with mixed signals getting to the brain. So you have the signals coming that your hands are very cold because you've been outside for a long time, and then you have a, a mixed signal about a different sensation coming in. And often um, these confusing signals end up being interpreted as a sensation of pain. I don't know whether that's the right answer, but that's what I would guess. Cathy, thank you very much for, for having a stab at it. It's a very hard question anyway, I think. Um, I think John Knox, who was a philosopher, struggled with that about 300 years ago, didn't he, I think? <laughs> thank you, Cathy. It's Cathy Stannard from the French A Hospital in Bristol. She's a, a, a specialist on the treatment of acute and chronic pain. Uh, Paul, I hope that helps you out with your question. Yes, thank you very much. Indeed. OK, thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you, a very good programme. Thank you very much. Bye. Paul in Lowestoft. I'd like to again quickly remind you about our teaser question tonight in order to win a copy of Chris's Naked Scientist book. Remember, the question was, 
What powerful painkiller comes from poppies? We've had loads of correct answers so far, so make sure you get in and give us a call. Especially, I'd like to give a, a hello to our overseas listeners on REM FM. We've got Liz in Costa del Sol. We've got Matthew in Tenerife. Mary, also in the Costa del Sol. And Bertha from Casita, Malaga. They all have the right answer. Congratulations to you. Also, plenty of uh, listeners around here that have also got the correct answer. Bill in Hopton, Julie in Lowestoft, we've got Alan in Linton, Stephanie in Cambridge, Alan on the A120, Keith in, uh, in PB, and many, many others. All getting the correct answer, so congratulations to you, and we'll have a winner at the end of the show. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Just a few minutes to have a go at our teaser question on this week's Naked Scientist. We want to know what drug comes from poppies. It's a powerful painkiller, and there's a clue. Now, talking of pain, David Julius is on the line. He's not a pain, but he works on pain, and he's at the University of California in San Francisco. Hello, David. Hello. Thank you for joining us. You've made some very interesting uh, discoveries about the relationship between what comes out of a chili and what comes out of a tarantula. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, um, what we found uh, several years ago is that the uh, chilies have their hot and spicy bite, which has uh, well, been known for many years that that's caused by a, a main pungent ingredient or chemical in the chili called capsaicin. And what we showed uh, was that capsaicin acts on a specific molecule on the surface of uh, pain-sensing nerve fibers, uh, and in doing so activates those nerve fibers and then generates a sensation of burning pain. So that's why if you eat a curry, you get this burning sensation in your mouth because you're fooling the brain or the nervous system's pain pathways into thinking you're being burned. Exactly. exactly. So why, why should there be this chemical overlap between the real burning, sort of someone holding a lighter to your cigarette to your finger, and, uh, and say, eating a chilli? Well, I think uh, in the case of the chilli, and uh, as we may get to in a moment, the case of the tarantula, all of these uh, organisms have basically usurped this pathway taken it over as a way of um, conveniently activating our pain system as an anti-predatory mechanism. So, so the chili wants to stop itself being eaten? Right, by something like a ground squirrel or some other mammal, predatory mammal. And, um, and so presumably uh, nature has uh, uh, endowed it with the capability to make these compounds that uh, have evolved to activate our pain pathway as a way of saying keep away. Now, uh, they... Uh, have done this by targeting a specific molecule, uh, which we believe is also involved in sensing heat. And so um, the psychophysical sensation is, is similar because it's activating the same neural pathways. Uh, the, both of those stimuli are activating the same neural pathways uh, that tell our brain that we've touched something hot or experienced something uh, that, that, we, uh, that we have come to know as being hot or, or, or uh, uh, of that, that ilk. Now you mentioned something interesting when you were talking just now. You said mammals and ground squirrels. So are you saying that not all animals are sensitive to the effects of chili, capsaicin? That's right. Not all animals are, and in particular, birds are relatively insensitive to capsaicin. Why? Uh, uh, I think it's because um, they have, again, have found their ecological niche as vectors for dispersal of the pepper seeds. And in, in addition to not being sensitive in terms of pain-wise being sensitive to, the, to capsaicin and to this burning sensation, 
their digestive tract also does not destroy the seeds. So they're well-suited to eat the pepper plant and then disperse the seeds as a way of, uh, of, of carrying out germination of the plant. So when some people argue, David, that a good way to prevent rats from nicking your chicken's food or going on your bird feeder, keep the squirrels off, would be to decorate your nuts with a, a healthy lashing of chilli. Yeah, well, people do that, and in fact, you can buy bird seed that's laced with capsicum dust. And, um, you know, I have trouble with squirrels in my bird feeder, too, and I have to try that. I've been told that the squirrels eventually will adapt and then ignore the, the hot pepper on there, but I have to try it myself. Because there's some evidence that uh, people who regularly ingest very hot curry become a bit less sensitive to its effects. Is that because it's damaging the receptor or they're damaging the nerves? Are their mouths becoming less sensitive to pain? Or, or is it just that the target for the chilli is being reduced in density on the surface of the nerve fibre? I think it's probably all of those things. So, uh, so capsaicin, when applied to a, uh, a sensory nerve fibre, will cause some... Uh, destruction or temporary desensitization of the nerve fiber ending, and um, and we you know you can see this in uh, in in rodents as well as in in man, and um, and so there is some uh, what we call functional desensitization of nerve fiber, and in some cases even some sort of anatomical damage. Of course, those fibers will regenerate and grow back. I think in the case of people, there's also uh, you know a psychophysical desensitization in a, in a way in that. You, you know, if you've been eating uh, kimchi or something spicy ever since you were three or four years old, uh, not only do you come to appreciate it, but you probably also get used to this sort of burning sensation. Now, one thing that does produce a burning sensation, though, is tarantulas that you've been looking at. Tell us the linkage between chili and those. Well, we asked um, a, a little while ago, why is it that bites and stings from some venomous creatures uh, are associated with uh, acute and intense pain? Um, and not much has been known about that. And what we did was to carry out biochemical fractionation of venom from a number of different spiders and ask whether there was something in those venoms that was particularly potent at activating some of the receptors that we and other labs have identified as being important players in initiating pain on nerve fibers. And we identified this one spider from uh, Trinidad and Tobago. It's called the, uh, the Trinidad Chevron. And, um, and in his venom is a small protein, a peptide, that, uh, or num three of them, actually, that we identified. There are probably more. And, and they activate the receptor? They're act they, they target the same receptor that the hot chili pepper targets. Thank you, David. Now, we're very, very short for time, but can you tell us in about 20 seconds <laughs> why it is that when I suck on a polo mint, it makes my breath feel cold? Uh, for the same reason that, uh, uh, same logic that hot peppers make you uh, feel heat, and that is that the mint acts on a receptor that's activated by cold, and so tickles the same signaling pathway uh, uh, through which cold tells your nerve fibers that you've experienced something thermally cold. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure having you on the programme. You're welcome. Thank you. David Julius from the University of California in San Francisco. Phil, who's won? Uh, winner tonight for our teaser question, what powerful painkiller appears in poppies? The answer was uh, opiates, and the winner is Sybil in Sarston. Congratulations, Sybil. Next time, we're going to be exploring the science of radiation, including why present plans for storing radioactive materials could be storing up trouble rather than just radiation. We'll also be off to Sizewell B Nuclear Power Station in Suffolk to find out how that works. And in kitchen science, Dave's going to be ionising himself with something radioactive, all in the name of science. So if you've got any burning questions about the science of radioactivity or any general science questions, or you just want to say hello, then do drop us a line. It's chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, check 
out the Nature podcast that we also make. That's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. And if you also fancy talking about science, then why don't you give the Naked Scientists online discussion forum a whirl? That's at nakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thanks to the team this end, Anna, Petro and Phil, and to our guests this week, Jeff Woods, Cathy Stannard and David Julius. And also thanks to you at home for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.